Over in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that there are some things that we can learn about God just by looking at the creation around us. In verse 20, he says, For since the creation of the world, his inv invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So when you, when you look at creation, when you look at how it's, it's been designed, how it's been engineered, a person should be able to say, well, I know that somebody made all of this. I know this didn't just happen by accident. And of course, the next logical question is, what does he want from me? And most of the time people say, well, no, I, I, don't, I don't see it that way. But Paul says they're without excuse. If, if you can, with an, an honest and sincere heart, look at creation, you have to come to the conclusion that it was made by someone. And then you have to start searching for that someone. And of course, God is not far from any one of us. So we, if, if we honestly search, we'll find. But people don't, don't want to do that oftentimes because as long as God doesn't exist, I can do whatever I want. But God does require some things from us. Brother Colonel read there in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, what does the Lord require of you? I, I like that verse really for a, a, a springboard into a lot of different kinds of lessons because the, the prophet tells us what does God require of us? Do justly, do the right thing according to God, uh, God's will, God's regulations, to love mercy, treat other people correctly, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, Amos 3 and verse 3, Amos asks the question, can two walk together lest they be agreed? And of course, the answer to that is no. So if I'm going to walk with God, I have to agree with God. And he says, walk humbly with your God. In other words, don't demand to have my way. You say, God, I'm going to do what you want me to do. But the, the religious world is full of people who, they don't view God as a father in heaven. They view God as a grandfather in heaven. Now, your grandfather may have been different, but grandfathers, in my mind at least, are the kind of person who is willing to give gifts to the grandchildren and really never demands a whole lot from them in return. You know, the father, generally speaking, is the disciplinarian. You know, you used to hear that uh, fairly often, at least in, in my youth, you know, just wait till your father gets home. You know, and when dad got home, you've done something and you're going to have to pay for it, a yardstick or a belt or something along those lines. I don't think they do that very much these days. But the father was a disciplinarian. And people don't like to view God as a disciplinarian, one that demands things from us. But he does. He requires some things from us. What does God want from us? The first thing that God wants us to do is obey the gospel. And again, you have a lot of people who don't, don't believe that. A lot of people who would claim to be religious people that are going to argue the point that no, God doesn't really require us to do anything. If we acknowledge his presence and we live relatively good lives, then that's all God wants. I've heard, I don't know how many people that uh, 
they don't claim to be part of any religious organization, but they would claim to be religious people anyway. And they would say, well, I know that God exists and I know the difference between right and wrong and I try to do the right thing and that's all God wants, so I'm fine. They think that, that God doesn't really want anything from us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is talking about what's going to happen at the end of time. And he says that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, it's verse 7, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Those who do not know God in the sense of doing what God says and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says they'll be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Uh, one of the things that, that I like to point out from time to time is a lot of times people think, well, maybe I'm not doing everything that God wants me to do, but I'm not a bad person. You know, so, so surely God is going to make some exceptions. You know, he's, he's going to let something slide. And it's only really bad people that are going to go to hell when they die. Well, here, Paul doesn't say that. When you look at the, uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, there's not one single thing listed there that that rich man did that was wrong. The parable doesn't say that, that, that he was, uh, did anything. He didn't steal. He didn't kill. He didn't blaspheme. All it says is he didn't do the right thing that he could have done when he had the opportunity. But where did he lift up his eyes in torment? Here, Paul says those who don't know God and they don't obey the gospel. It doesn't say they did anything really, really bad. They didn't do what God required, though. They didn't obey the gospel. God insists, God requires that we be obedient to the gospel of Christ. You know, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Uh, one of my biggest pet peeves in the whole wide world is, is all of these commercials and things that you hear when, uh, when they're telling you, get what you deserve. You know, get, get the loan you deserve, get the car you deserve, get the house you deserve. You deserve all these things. Well, no, you don't. You deserve things that you have earned. You went and worked for them. They're yours by right. And Paul in Romans 6, 23 tells us that what we have earned, what we deserve, what is ours by right is death. The wages, wages are something you went and worked for. You earned it, it belongs to you. And he says the wages of sin is death. And since all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that's what we deserve. Of course, he goes on there and tells us that the gift of God is eternal life. A gift is offered to you freely, but you don't have to accept it. See, that's the thing. God wants everyone to be saved. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repent in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. God's perfect will is for every single solitary person to obey the gospel and live a life of faithful service and go to heaven when they die. 
but they're not going to do it. Is that God's fault? No. God gave them a way to do it. He told us how to do it. His word gives us the roadmap from earth to heaven. But we're going to choose not to do it. It's our choice. We get to make the decision. God says, you're not going to go to heaven if you don't obey the gospel. That's what he wants us to do. God also wants us to worship correctly. And this has been a big deal uh, over the last, uh, I don't know, couple of years at least. But people think, a lot of people do anyway, that anything can be worship. You know, well, I can worship God when I'm out mowing the yard. I can worship God when I go to work and I do this, that, or the other. They don't understand what worship is. <clears throat> you can serve God while you're doing some of these things, but, but serving is not the same as worshiping. Worship is an act that is prescribed by God that is offered up to him. God is the one who makes the rules. And it is worship when God says it's worship, not because we decided that it was. Uh, I made this point once upon a time when I was talking uh, specifically about instrumental music in worship. And I said, God nowhere tells us that we can use mechanical instruments of music in worship. And they said, I, I agree with that. You know, Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19, they tell us we're supposed to sing. We're supposed to make melody in our heart, and that's what we're supposed to do. And since he doesn't tell us we can do anything else, we can't. I said, well, what about if you're singing religious songs outside the worship assembly? Can you use mechanical instruments of music then? They said, well, sure. I said, where do you get the authority for that? Well, we haven't declared that to be a worship service. Whoa, wait a second. When do you get to decide if it's worship or not? You don't. God does. Now, in James chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. So I have God's authority to sing religious songs outside the worship assembly. Because he told me I could do it. If I'm happy when I'm out mowing the yard, I can sing how great thou art. When I look at, at the magnificent uh, nature that he's placed here, I can sing things like that because he gave me the authority to do it. But where did he say that I can play a guitar while I do it? He didn't. He said, let him sing psalms. Now, if you're going to say that Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19 say that we can sing, but we cannot play, then you have to say the same thing in James 5.13 because he says sing, but he doesn't say play. If it's, if it's valid in one place, it's valid in the other. Now they said, but, but you know, it, it, it's only worship in the assembly because we declare it to be a worship service. No, we didn't. Did anybody stand up here and say, we're going to declare this to be a worship so everything we do from this point on is an act of worship? No, nobody did that. We know it's worship because God said it was worship, not because we do. There are two kinds of worship. An act of worship is an act of worship no matter what we think, no matter what we say, no matter what we do. 
An act of worship is an act of worship because God said it is. Now we can worship acceptably or we can worship unacceptably. But that doesn't change the nature of what we're doing. If, if I am a Christian in the New Testament sense of the word, and I am singing religious songs no matter where it is, that is an act of worship. If I'm singing and playing a mechanical instrument of music, it's still an act of worship, but it is now an unacceptable act of worship because I added something to it that God did not authorize. Leviticus chapter 10, first couple of verses, Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, are priests. And they are going to go and they're going to offer incense to God. They have their braziers. And if you want to know what one of those is, if you ever see a movie or, or uh, a news clip of the Pope doing anything, these guys have got these little metal things on a chain. They're swinging them around and smoke's coming out of them. Well, that's what he's talking about. It, it, it is a receptacle for incense. And they were told to take fire from the altar, put it in their brazier, put incense on it, and offer incense to God. Now, in Leviticus chapter one, uh, 10, verses 1 and 2, it says that Nadab and Abihu did that, but they took the wrong fire. They didn't take the fire from the altar. They used some other kind of fire. It's called profane fire in the New King James, which just means it's plain old ordinary fire. It wasn't sacred fire. Now, you know, most people say, well, fire's fire. Who cares? It's going to burn the incense. What difference does it make? It made a difference because God said, take it from the altar. And if you, if you read that, what are Nadab and Abihu killed for? Because they did that which God had not commanded them. It doesn't say that they did something God said don't do. God didn't say don't take fire from that place. God said take fire from that place and they did something else that God had not commanded them. And God killed them for it and told their father Aaron, don't you mourn over them either. If you're going to come before me, I, you must regard me as holy. And they decided, well, I can do what I want to. We don't have to do that. That's not that big of a deal. It's not that important. You know, who cares where the fire comes from? God does. Who cares what kind of music you offer in worship to God? God does. God says this is what you do, and that's what we have to do. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9, Jesus said, In vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. He said they're offering vain worship. It's empty. It's worthless. It's useless. Why? Because they're not doing what God said. They're doing what men said which is what a lot of people do this day and time. God has given us a pattern, and God expects us to follow the pattern. Over in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, Paul said, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. He said, You're not under the law of Moses anymore, but does that mean that, that you can sin all you want to and the grace of God will just cover it? He said, No. If you're doing it on purpose, God's grace is not going to cover it. The things that you do uh, unintentionally, the things that you do because of a moment of weakness or something like that, yes, God's grace covers those. But he says, do you not know 
that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. You are somebody's slave. You're either Satan's slave because you're, you're offering yourself to him to do what he wants you to do, or you're God's slave because you're doing what he wants you to do. But you're a slave to one or the other. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form or pattern of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having, in the, the King James adds the word then here, which I think is, is proper, having then been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You were a slave to sin. You obeyed from the heart the pattern of doctrine that God has given us and then you became a slave of righteousness because you obeyed the pattern. You followed the pattern. I was telling uh, Roger uh, before we started, we were talking about, you know, people, people doing the wrong thing. And uh, I, I worked in a machine shop for a lot of years and uh, we had to work from blueprints. We did a lot of different kinds of work for a lot of different people. And we had somebody once that had a blueprint and he was making the part and he looked at it and he saw what was an obvious mistake on the blueprint. And he said, this, this can't be right. And so he changed it to go along with what he thought was right. And he got through with the part and it went to quality control and the part was rejected. And he said, why? They said, you didn't make it according to the print. He said, the print's wrong. And one of the guys who had worked for these people before said, no, it's not. Oh, yeah, if you look at it and you don't know what they're doing, you think, yeah, that's a mistake, it's wrong. But they have a perfectly good reason for wanting it done that way. You thought it was a mistake, so you changed it on your own authority, and it was not a mistake. And he said something, and it got to be one of those uh, phrases that, that was pretty common in the shop for years after that, give them what they ask for, not what they want. If they ask for this, that's what you do, even though you may think it's wrong. You don't give them what you think they want. You give them what they ask for. And that way, if it's wrong, it's their problem, not yours. You did exactly what you were told to do. And that's the way Christians ought to look at things. God can tell us to do things, and we may not see the reason behind it. We may not think that it's that good of an idea. You know, why do I have to do it like that? Because God said so. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to know why. But do what he says to do, because he has given us a pattern. And God wants us to grow. You know, one of the problems that we oftentimes have is that people don't grow spiritually the way they should. You know, I'm sure you've heard this example several times, but people will tell you, well, you know, if, if, if someone has a baby and, you know, six or seven years down the road, the baby's still wearing diapers and still drinking from a bottle, you think there's a problem. And physically there would be. But we don't seem to think there's a problem when you have Christians who five or six years after they've become a Christian or even 10 or 12 or 30 or 40 are still at the same knowledge level that they used to be. We don't seem to think that that's an issue, but it is an issue. 
It is absolutely necessary that we as Christians grow. We have to know more than we did last year. We have to be stronger in the faith than we were last year. You know, over in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, the Hebrew writer has some things that he wants to explain to his readers, specifically about, about the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he says, I can't do it, though. He says in verse 11, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He says, it, it, I, I need to explain this to you. you. You need to understand it, but I'm having a hard time doing it because you are not at the knowledge level you need to be. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And he goes on. This is one of those really unfortunate chapter divisions because this is not a good place to do it. But he goes on in the first part of chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. And then he goes on and explains to them how bad it's going to be if they don't do this. Talking about it being impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. He says it's hard. And if you don't continue to progress, you're going to regress. And that's the situation that you find yourself in. He says these people should have been growing. And they haven't been. He says instead of going forward, you've been going backwards. You need to stop. Stop going backwards. Start going forward. Because you can't stand still for long. If, if you have come to a dead stop, you're either going to gain some momentum and start going forward again, or you're going to go backwards. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have in the Lord's church today. Why are false teachers able to get away with some of the things that they say? Because the people that they're talking to don't know the difference. They don't know if it's wrong or right. If you make a good enough sounding argument, they'll say, oh, well, I, that, that sounds right. I guess that's okay. And they'll just go on ahead. They don't know the difference. They're not looking to see if what they're being told is true or not. You know, the Bereans ought to be held up as one of the greatest examples that you could ever follow. The Bereans were, were, were nobler, the King James says. They were more reasonable. I think it was a good way to look at it, but they were more reasonable when Paul came and started preaching to them. Now, they were Jews, just like the people in Thessalonica had been. The ones in Thessalonica didn't want to hear it. They said, oh, we don't want to hear about this, Jesus. We don't want to hear all this stuff. And they caused a big uproar. But in Berea, when Paul got there, it said they listened. 
with all readiness of mind. They said, we don't know what you're talking about right now. We've never heard this before, but we're going to listen to you. But they didn't say they were going to accept what they were told. Then they searched the scriptures daily to see if what they were being told was true or not. We'll listen to you, but then we're going to check up on you, and we're going to see if you're right or not. And it says, because they did that, many of them believed. That's what you ought to do. You know, don't listen to what I say without, you know, saying, well, is it right or wrong? Get the Bible and check. Randy, tell you the same thing. Don't accept it just because somebody you think is authoritative said so. That's a bad habit that people have got. I read a, uh, a study that was done back some time ago. They wanted to see what people would do if an authority figure told them to. And so they, they brought these people in and they told them, we're, we're testing, uh, we're going to ask this guy questions, and every time he gets one wrong, we're going to give him an electric shock. And every time he gets one wrong, we're going to keep jumping up the voltage. And we're going to see, you know, what happens. Well, they weren't checking that. They were actually checking to see if the person would do it or not. The guy wasn't really getting an electric shock. They just made him think he was. So he would ask a question, and then he would purposely get it wrong, and they would give him a shock. It wasn't really uh, shocking him, but he'd yell and carry on like he was. And they said those people would keep on bumping the voltage up because somebody in a lab coat told them to until they hit the danger zone. They said 60, 68% of people would continue to do it even though they knew it was harming somebody because an authority figure told them to. That's a bad habit to fall into. Don't do it. They may be an authority figure, but are they an authority on what they're telling you? Or do they have their, their, their own uh, agenda? You know, check, see if they're right. Of course, one of the interesting things about that whole test was they said if one person stood up and said, I am not going to do that, they said all of a sudden the, uh, the, the about 65% that would have done it dropped to about 10%. One person stood up and said, that's wrong and I won't do it. It gave a lot of other people the courage to do the same thing. But just don't take somebody's unsupported word for things because we have got to grow, but you grow from God's word, not necessarily from something that somebody is telling you. And we have to evangelize. You know, when you start talking about evangelism, everybody, oh, oh, yeah, that's the preacher's job, Bible class teacher's job. Or, you know, give it to the elders. Let them do it. I don't, I don't have any responsibility to do this. Yes, you do. Everybody does. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. I said, well, he was talking to the apostles. He's not talking to me teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Well, what had he just commanded them? To preach to everybody, make disciples of all the nations. And he says, tell them to observe that too. We all have a responsibility to evangelize, <clears throat> if nothing else, through our example. And even if you are going to actively teach and do Bible studies with people, your example had better be right there with it. Because people will listen to what you do a lot sooner than they will to what you say. 
you can say all of the right things you want to, but if you're not living it, somebody will know it. And they'll say, well, why should I listen to him? He doesn't even do what he says. Matthew chapter 5, we're told, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We have a responsibility as individual Christians to try to influence the people around us so that they'll be Christians too. God requires that of us. And if you are a Christian and you are doing what you're supposed to do, other people are going to know it. Of course, they'll also know it if you're not. I remember hearing a story one time. It's probably one of those preacher stories that, that's good for an illustration but never actually happened. But I don't know one way or the other. But uh, a young man was going to join the military, and uh, his mother was worried about it. And she thought, well, he's a, he's a good Christian young man, and he's going to go off, and he's going to be a, uh, with a bunch of rough people, and I'm afraid that they're really going to give him a hard time. And she kept waiting for a letter to come back, and that tells you how old this story is because they were actually writing letters. But she never got the letter she was expecting to, him saying, well, people are make, uh, making fun of me, giving me a hard time. So finally, she couldn't stand it. She wrote a letter, and she asked him, said, are people giving you a hard time for being a Christian? And he wrote back and says, don't worry, Mom, nobody's found out yet. Nobody's found out yet. They should, without you having to say a word. They ought to be able to tell by what you do, by the things that you say. God has requirements for us. He requires that we obey the gospel. He requires that we worship correctly. He requires that we grow personally and in knowledge. And he requires that we try to influence the people around us. These are things that God requires. It may be that there's someone here this morning that's not a Christian. If you're here and you've, you've never put Christ on in baptism, you have another opportunity to do that today. You have no guarantee that you'll ever get another one. You could come forward this morning confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and you could be baptized to have your sins washed away. Or it could be that you're here and you're an erring child of God. You've not done the things that God requires you to do. If that be the case, you need to go to God in prayer. Confess your sin to him from a repentant heart and ask him to forgive you, and he's promised to do that. If your sin is public in nature, then your repentance should be public as well, so that you'll not bring shame and reproach upon the church. Or it might be that you just need to come forward and ask for the prayers of those saints that are gathered here for some other reason. Whatever your need is, would you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing.